0: Welcome to Awaken Podcasts. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Uh, I want to invite Ken Steinbach up. Um, Ken is uh, responsible for the installation that you see here this morning and last week. So if you would, welcome Mr. Ken Steinbach. Thank you. So Ken, tell us a little bit about what you do week to week, uh, month to month. Uh, I'm an uh,
1: artist, I teach at Bethel University, so mostly I teach uh, classes on sculpture and design and creative practices, a class in teaching people how to be creative. Awesome. How long have you been at Bethel? uh, I've been teaching full time for 22 years at Bethel for, I don't know, how long? Okay. most of those. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. So tell us just a little bit about the inspiration and kind of the process and what you were trying to communicate with this installation.
1: Yeah, well, I like the word responsible. That um, that was a pretty interesting choice. The guy responsible for this. Um, Well, a number of people came to me and they're
0: like, "Michael, what is going on here?" I'm like, "What in the world?" Okay, so Ken's going to be here next week. Who's who who is this guy? So tell us a little bit about it. I love the story. So share it with us. um you know, the,
1: the space is a really interesting space. This is a project I've been working on, kind of on and off for about 16, 18 months. Uh, it's part of a, a grant that I got from the state of Minnesota Arts Board um, to kind of explore some ideas related to location and religion. Um, and I was really searching for a home for this space, actually. I had I looked at a lot of locations around the Twin Cities, and and actually sitting here one day in the service, because we go here, um, I, I I began to really think about this location, not only in terms of the architecture here, which is a really curious uh, bit of architecture that Micah mm-hmm. has talked about, uh, this, this immigrant community that created this location, but also its location within the Mississippi River Valley. Yeah. I'm very interested in geology, uh, you know, sort of natural history, and realizing that 12, 15,000 years ago, this location would have been underwater, you right. know, a lot of water, that where we were would have been submerged. And thinking about that relative to you know, ecological ideas that we currently are living with. Um, yeah. And also these different histories that kind of interact in this particular bit of real estate.
0: Right, right. Mm-hmm. And so the pieces, you, you've you gotten all these and you made them with, uh, like, CNC steel kind of rusted yep. mm-hmm. cutouts, yeah. uh, each one by hand.
1: Yeah, so, the, so the, the, the different panels or the different fabric pieces around are made, uh, there's a couple examples of the steel patterns uh, back in a pedestal in the in the lobby, but I would put the panel, the, the, this piece of steel down, I would put down some salt, put down some ultramarine pigment. Ultramarine mm-hmm. pigment has strong associations with the Catholic Church, traditionally in the medieval Renaissance era. Uh, ultramarine would have been used to paint depictions of the Virgin because it mm. actually was more valuable than gold at that time. It actually wow. is a, a mineral that comes from the Afghanistan area. So wow. just to get it to where it was needed was tremendously expensive. Uh, so there was uh, that bit of history. So I put down some of that ultramarine pigment. It's not as expensive anymore. Right, but, right. Um, uh, <coughs> but I put down some of that, some salt, some water, some other pigments, some marble dust, and put the fabric down on top of it. Uh, cool. So the object that is made is actually kind of simultaneously highly planned but completely spontaneous. It's, it's yeah. a result of, of whatever the liquid and chemicals want to do with each other. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome.
0: Thank you so much for saying mm-hmm. yes, for imagining it here. Yeah. And uh, if you guys have questions, please feel free to talk to Ken. There's a statement in the back that unpacks mm-hmm. uh, a little bit uh, about what's going on here. So can we thank you for... Oh, I want
1: to say... Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank um, one final bit uh, is that the, the piece, when I take it down, uh, not next week because we yeah. won't be here next week, but the following weeks, I'll actually have these panels in the lobby out there. And I would love it if you folks would take one. yeah, And so they can have this other history. So so you can remember this here that you can take a bit of that home with awesome. you. Awesome. Very cool. Thanks, Thank again,
0: Appreciate it. <clears throat> Very cool. Very cool. Uh, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 5. Which means that we are in a series called Lost in Translation. Uh, we've been taking difficult passages, and in this case, a book, uh, and trying to understand them a little bit more. And so we're going to be in a little mini-series within Lost in Translation, a little mini-series on the book of Revelation. Now, this is, uh, this is in part an attempt to atone for the sins of my past as a, as a preacher and as a teacher. Uh, I've told this story before, but when I was 22 and fresh out of college, I thought it would be a great idea with my new junior high youth group to do a series on the book of Revelation. <laughs> I should have sent out a permission slip for that series. I didn't. But, um, which was, it was basically like a regurgitation of the Left Behind series by uh, Mr. Jenkins and LaHaye, if you know that, complete with references to Nikolai Carpathia. <laughs> um, so, so I'm going to attempt to, to offer a few things I've learned since then. How about that? Um, when I say, This is an all-play question, so shout out an answer if you have one. When I say the book of Revelation, what do you think of? Just shout out some answers. End times, I heard. Rapture. Jesus. Antichrist. Judgment. The beast. In the back. New heavens and new earth. Yes, yes. Say it louder. Beer. 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 Oh, weird. <laughs> With a little bit of beer, it becomes less weird, actually. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, yeah. Okay, so here's what's fascinating about the book of Revelation themes that we think of when we think of Revelation, like the Antichrist and the Rapture, don't even show up in the book. The word Antichrist and the word Rapture are nowhere to be found in the entire book of Revelation. Themes like empire, the lamb, uh, kingdoms, um, authority or rule, uh, witness, the word that uh, it comes from the word martyr, uh, to witness to something. Those are actually themes that are just constant all the way through the book. And yet when we think about the book of Revelation, we very infrequently think about those kinds of themes, which I think is very interesting. Revelation is a polarizing book, for sure. Some people hate it. Some people can't stop talking about it. Have you been to that dinner party when the signs of the times have come up? Yeah, that's an awkward one, right? It's like, man, find the the, uh, pickle rolls quick. (laughs) Or anything to stop this conversation about signs of the times, you know? Um, Here's a couple of quotes from the book of Revelation. Uh, This is from our good friend Martin Luther. He says, neither apostolic nor prophetic. I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. Again, they are supposed to be blessed who keep it, what is written in this book, and yet no one knows what that is, to say nothing of keeping it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. (laughs) Martin Luther, did you know he tried to get it out of the canon in like 1500? He literally lobbied to get Revelation taken out of the Bible. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche says, The most rabid outburst of vindictiveness in all recorded history. First time I've ever quoted Nietzsche in a sermon. That's a little overboard, but it, none, nonetheless. Uh, George Bernard Shaw, the playwright, says, A curious record of the visions of a drug addict. <laughs> That's about right. Uh, John Dominic Crossan, who's a New Testament theologian, says, A book that transforms the nonviolent resistance of the slaughtered Jesus into the violent warfare of the slaughtering Jesus. Whoa. So this is a polarizing book for sure, and many people. Um, I think it's safe to say that it's the least read book in the church. Um, nowhere in uh, almost nowhere in the entire Common Revised Lectionary is there a reading from the Book of Revelation. It's like hardly anywhere in the lectionary, and I would say it's the most misunderstood and misapplied book for sure. Um, so for, for hopefully in this series in Lost in Translation, what I want to do is try to at least give us a chance to read the book of Revelation and get some of the things that I think it was intended for. So I wanna do two things this morning. Number one, I wanna to try to give us some tools as we sort of uh, walk in this over the next couple of weeks. Some tools if you, if you decide to read it yourself. Some things that might be helpful. And then two, I wanna to try to dispel some of the violent imagery of this book. Um, Many people, including the people I quoted earlier, for good reason, come to the conclusion that Jesus and God are sort of this bloodthirsty and vengeance-filled God uh, after reading a book like Revelation. Uh, One prominent pastor who writes or wrote a lot of books and spoke a lot publicly, who no longer does, said this, in Revelation, Jesus is a pride fighter. Pride is the correct word. It's like the cage fighters, you know, you've seen those, like ultimate fighting. Jesus, in Revelation, Jesus is a pride fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and a commitment to make someone bleed. That is a guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie, diaper, halo Jesus because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. (laughs) That's a sermon series in and of itself, that quote. But there's a lot of violent imagery in this book, if we're honest. And the problem is, it's sort of whiplash for people. Sometimes people come to the Old Testament and they read it and they're like, okay, Old Testament God, sort of, uh, uh, you know, God at war. It's the Old Testament, we can sort of dismiss that because then we get Jesus and he's filled with grace and mercy and love. But then they read the book of Revelation and it's like whiplash. It's sort of, we've got this God back who's at war and filled with vengeance and a commitment to make someone bleed. And I want to try to show that John, in this book, using a particular version and genre of literature, actually uh, is saying the exact opposite of that most of the time. That, in fact, what we do not get in the book of Revelation is a God who is filled with vengeance and looking for blood, but rather the opposite of that. John is a brilliant writer, and I want to try to show in this series um, that what's often read and understood to mean one thing, in fact sometimes means the opposite of that. Now I'd be remiss without saying that I'm indebted to a friend of mine named Greg who uh, has written on this and spoken on this and this, this, this idea or this understanding of Revelation, it's not uncommon in the academic world, but at like the popular level, just people in the pews on a Sunday morning, this may seem a little new to some of us. So I wanna just encourage you Buckle up. Uh, I want to encourage you to listen uh, well, to think critically, to don't dismiss something right out of hand, but to sit with it and let it, let it marinate and see what might happen with that. Does that sound good? Okay, so if you have a Bible, Revelation chapter 5, and we will uh, read uh, this passage from uh, chapter 5. I'll invite you to stand, if you will. And this is where we want to spend some time this morning. John says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open it or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion, the tribe of Judah, The root of David has triumphed, for he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which were the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousand upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, wisdom and strength, honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature on heaven and, under the, and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne... And to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Pray with me. God, this morning, as we uh, attempt to hear this book and the words that were written and find ourselves in the midst of this story in some way, shape, and form, I pray that you might speak, that you might uh, open up who you are to us, whatever we came in these doors with. Whatever images, whatever pictures, whatever experiences we've had, God, I pray that they would be consistent with and congruent with what we know about you, Jesus. And insofar as they're not, God, would you challenge us and invite us to see you for who you really are. I pray that all of our beliefs and our understanding of who you are, God, are rooted in the resurrected Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So, two things I want to do. Some tools, and then let's look at this passage from chapter 5. First, some of the tools. Uh, if you were here last week, it should be no surprise to you, we want to talk about genre, first and foremost. When a book of literature is written, it is absolutely essential that you understand what genre it is written in. If you're reading a poem, and you read it like it's a narrative, or like historical literature, you're, it's like you're reading with a blindfold. If you read Shakespeare and you read it like it's the news, you cannot understand what Shakespeare is doing. If you read the book of Revelation and you don't understand what genre it's written in, you, have, you run a great risk of running off course quite quickly. So what is the book of Revelation? What are we reading? I would say it's at least two things, some would say three, I wanna say at least these two. It's at once an apocalyptic letter, we'll explain that, and it's a letter. It's written to a group of people. Uh, It's a combination of these two things, and it sort of ebbs and flows between at least these two. So first, this letter. If you follow uh, in in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3, you get seven letters to seven churches. And if you actually were to map those out on the map, you would find that it's the route of an ancient Roman road. So the ways in which this letter would have been written or or, uh, dispersed was that people would go and carry it from one place to another along this ancient Roman road, and it it was meant to be passed on from one church to another. So John is a pastor. He's a shepherd. He's a theologian. And these people are living in the Roman Empire. They are living under the oppression of Rome. They're living with the fear of persecution and possibly martyrdom, that they might be killed for their faith. So John, as a pastor, writes this letter, a revelation that he's given to encourage and equip the church to live in the the situation that they found themselves in. They would have read this letter and they would have understood it perfectly because John's tapping into an ancient Jewish tradition called apocalyptic literature in which there are symbols and signs that are used to denote certain things. Now, sometimes when we run off track, we get way, way deep in the weeds and we're trying to figure out what every single word means and this means that and it's like a code. You gotta, you gotta crack the code, right? It's the Da Vinci code. And I, I just wanna encourage you as you read the book of Revelation, keep a high level view of what you're reading, right? Symbols and signs are important and they help you kinda get the, the language and the gist of what. John is trying to do, but when you get really, really deep in the weeds and you're trying to decode every single word, it gets a little messy really quickly. This group of people would have understood what John was talking about. They were fearing for their lives, and John encourages them with this letter to these seven churches. So the chapters two and three are this letter, he comes back to the sort of letter form at the end, and most of the things in between are what's commonly called Jewish apocalyptic literature. Now, apocalypse, again, it's not meant to be taken literally. If I could encourage you with one thing as your pastor, the whole idea of, like, Revelation as a crystal ball where we see into the future, take that, kick it down the road, and never look at it again, okay? The whole idea that Revelation is trying to predict the future and what's going to happen at the end of the world, I I just want to say that I don't think it's true at all. I don't think that's what John set out to do. He wasn't writing a book to try to tell you how the world would end, He was writing a book to a group of churches who were under Roman persecution and oppression. And this would have been encouragement to them. So if the end of the world that comes someday, you see the disconnect there. Like what John set out to do is not tell us how the end of the world would come. So this whole idea of like a crystal ball when you read Revelation, you're trying to figure out how the world is going to end, I would just submit to you that that's not why it was written and so it's not a very good exercise. So the, the signs of the times conversation at the next dinner party... Find the pickle rolls, quick. One author says, far from looking for the end of the world, they, Jewish apocalyptic writers, were looking for the end of an empire. See, for the people of God, for the Jews in their time, Assyria, then Babylon, and now Rome have come in and oppressed you and held you under their thumb for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so what the, what the Jewish people were longing for and hoping for and desiring was not the end of the world, but the end of an empire and all of, and, and the evil that it stands for. And so this is what John sets out to do. The word apocalypse The word revelation, or the the original word in Greek is apocalypto and that's where we get this word revelation because apocalypse literally means to unveil or to appear or to reveal. So John's trying to reveal something here. Uh, One of my friends has this idea that revelation is a little bit like a Rorschach test. Do you guys know what a Rorschach test is? It's like the inkblot and you go in and you sit down with the, the therapist and they show you this inkblot and you're supposed to tell them what you see. And with the Rorschach test, what's actually happening is you're you're saying more about yourself and your own understanding of the world and yourself than than the inkblot in and of itself. And he would argue that Revelation is a bit like an inkblot test. It's, It's telling you whatever beliefs or conclusions that you come to when you read Revelation, it tells you more about your own beliefs about God than it does Revelation itself. It sort of exposes what, so if you believe that God is vengeful and looking for, uh, has a commitment to make somebody bleed with a tattoo down his leg and a sword coming out of his mouth and his eyes blazing fire, like that's the picture of God and that's how God executes power and judgment, then that's what you'll find. But if you know and and if you're committed to the idea that what we know about God is what we know about Jesus on the cross, then I would argue that that's that's what is in here and that's what John is doing. So, apocalypse and letter. What about these symbols? I, wanna, I hesitated even doing this because I don't want to send anybody down the wrong track, but I think this is helpful. So here's a couple of, uh, of, of uh, little graphs. And as you read the book of Revelation, in general, when you see colors, they often mean something, even in the ancient world as well as in Jewish apocalyptic literature. So white often means victory or purity or divinity, resurrection, sort of this heavenly idea, right? Uh, red is often the color of blood and violent power, especially in the book of Revelation. Uh, Purple or scarlet is often a symbol for the empire or empire and evil and this sort of decadence. Uh, Black and pale is often death and disaster. And then gold is often beauty and wealth and royalty. So when you read these colors, this idea should shape what the color is is talking about. And then numbers. If you know anything about Jewish literature and apocalypse, a number is never just a number. It's, It's often connected to something. So here are some numbers you find in Revelation. The number four. It's talking about often universality, or especially uh, in creation. So the fullness of God's creation often shows up when you see the number four. Uh, The number six is often imperfection. It's one less than the number of perfection in Jewish literature, which is seven. So it's the anti-often. It's the opposite. This is where we get the idea of the Antichrist. The opposite of the Christ is the Antichrist, right? Uh, 12 and multiples of 12 are often the fullness of God's people. So in this passage we read the 24 elders were bowing down at the throne. The fullness of God's people in the Old Testament, the fullness of God's people in the New Testament. 12 sons of Jacob, 12 apostles, the fullness of God's people. And then it's thousands upon thousands. That's essentially its its original number, 12, and 12 times 12 is 144, times 1,000, times 1,000, times 1,000. You get this large number, sort of unquantifiable number this uh, beyond sort of idea, right? So those are some of the numbers and symbols when we read Revelation that are going to be helpful. Now, just a couple of themes that I think you should note as you're reading Revelation, and then we'll end with this chapter 5. The first, and I don't want to throw these out there because I think if you miss these two, and if you're too far away from them, you begin to miss the plot line. And the first is this, the crucified and resurrected Messiah. If you want to know what the book is about, you need not read past the first two verses of chapter 1, where John says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and then the end of chapter 2, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. If you want to know what the book of Revelation is about, the main plot line is the crucified and resurrected Jesus. John is not trying to tell us the future, he's not trying to predict the future, He's not trying to tell us how the world will end. Some of what he's talking about for the first people who read it would have been in the future, yes, but it's not like the end of the world REM style, right? It's the end of the world as we know it. That's not what's going on here. John's main point is the revealing of Jesus Christ, the revealing of the resurrected Messiah. So really, the whole subject of the book is something that's already happened. And he's fleshing that out. Here's what it looks like when the power of God is on display and the forces of evil and the empires of this world are opposed. So this is the first theme. I think if if you're too far away from this, you're gonna miss the plot line. The other one I would mention is this. What does God's power look like? When we think about God, and we're thinking about how God rules and reigns and executes power in the world, what does it look like? This question is at the front of John's mind. One of the dominant themes in this book is the power of God and it's constantly juxtaposed with the power of the Satan or the adversary in scripture and his agents and the empires that embody it. So there are two kingdoms in Revelation that you find. There's the kingdom of God and then there's the kingdom of Babylon. Babylon is a representation of evil and all that it entails and the empires that embody it. So it's Babylon in, in the, the location, yes, but it's this bigger idea of all that opposes God and all of the evil that embodies, uh, it gets embodied in an empire. There are two kinds of people in Revelation. There are the people of the lamb and there are people of the dragon. And the beast and the prostitute, which are agents of the dragon. But there's the people of the lamb and there's the people of the dragon. So it's these two stories, these two narratives. And we find this all through the scriptures, These two stories competing for our allegiance. So when the power of God is on display, what does it look like? This is one of the dominant questions in the book of Revelation. So let's look at this chapter five that we read. And I want to unpack what I think is a really pivotal scene. So chapter one is this beginning kind of introduction, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapters two and three are the letters to the seven churches. Chapter four is this beautiful picture of the throne room of God. And then five is what we just read. And I want to try to dispel what could be violent images because in chapter 4, Jesus is riding on a horse and a sword is coming out of his mouth. But what happens in chapter 5? Three things that you should note here. The right hand, the, the, the throne, and the secret scroll. So the right hand, it begins, and then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. All through the scriptures, the right hand is a representation of or a symbol of power and authority and sovereign rule. To sit at someone's right hand is a big deal. This is James and John's discussion when they're with Jesus, right? Can I sit at your right and at your left? Why? Because to sit at the right hand of somebody means you're in. You're executing the power and authority that they execute. In Exodus chapter 15, it's a conversation about God's sort of uh, 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 redemptive acts in the book of Exodus, in in the story of the Exodus, and they say, your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. In the book of Acts, when Stephen is stoned, the heavens open up and he says, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So John begins with chapter 5 with the right hand signifying power and rule and authority, right? The other day we have a dog. The dog's name is River. <clears throat> now River is a lovely little animal. She, uh, she's great. She's a great dog. The other day, we have an electric fence, have you guys ever done that before, with the electric fence all the way around the property? So she's got this little collar, and when she gets close to the electric fence, it beeps, and she sort of, like, backs up, you know? It's, it's actually terrible to watch. But she doesn't run away. She's a lab. So the other day, I'm laying in bed, it's like, you know, 6.30 in the morning, and I hear this bark. And I'm like, that is the bark of one river, The dog. Like children, you know, Josh was mentioning, you know, he can recognize the, the cry of his son. Uh, you, can, you, you get to know the, the bark of your dog. And I'm like, that is River, and she is a long ways away, like, woo, across the park. So I'm like, oh, come on. So nobody put the collar on. So I get up, I put my clothes on, I go outside, and I come around the front, and I yell, River! And I hear her, her little uh, tags jingling, and she's running that way, and the, she was barking at the, the, the park workers. She's like, she ran that way. Well, she ran back the way she came from, which is a little hole in our fence in the back of the yard. So I run back around, making sure she doesn't go in the school. And I come into the house, and sure enough, there is River, and she is cowering behind the kitchen island with my wife on one hand and the three others on the other. Why? Because River knows the right hand in the Witham home. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In terms of ruling and reigning the canines in the house, it's right here, baby. This is the right hand of power and authority. And River the dog knows it. So she's cowering behind the kitchen island. John says the right hand. What is being signified with the right? It's power. It's the rule and reign, the authority. Of who? Who are we talking about? Who's on the throne? So in the right hand of him who is on the throne. And of course, if you're following the story in the scriptures, it's not hard to say that this is God the Father the one who is and will be forevermore, the one that Jesus is standing at the right hand of in in Stephen's vision. So John opens this chapter with the vision of the rule and reign and authority, not of an earthly king, not of somebody else in political power, but rather the maker of heaven and earth, the first person of the Trinity. This is the right hand of whom sits on the throne. And then there's this scroll. Have you guys ever seen like a, uh, Robin Hood or Game of Thrones or any of those like old-fashioned medieval shows when you have a scroll It's a declaration from the king right and it's often sealed with wax and the seal of the king on the front of it And then it's sent out to the Empire and the people know who receive it if the seal is broken Then somebody read it on the way and they would be you know taken out So when a scroll shows up, it's a declaration of the king So what do we have here in chapter 5? We have the right hand, the rule, the power, the sovereign authority of who? The one who sits on the throne and what's in, and then it's secret. It's, It's in this scroll that's been sealed seven times, like completely sealed, as it were. And so John's like, he weeps. He says, who can open it? Who can tell us? Or what does the power of God look like? What's the rule and reign of God look like? It's bound up in the scroll and no one can know. Then, of course, the the elder says, Oh, John, but wait, but wait. Good news, good news, friend. There's one who can open it, the lion from the tribe of Judah. And so John's there in the throne room. He sees the right hand of the one on the throne and the, the scroll that cannot be opened, but wait. The lion of the tribe of Judah can open it. And so John, it says, the text says, John looks and he saw, but what does he see? And this is where John takes an image and totally subverts it. You see, when we think about power and authority and kingdoms and ruling, we think of top down, right? By the sword and by bullets and bombs and guns. This is how power is executed in the world. And who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is consistent with the rule and reign and power and authority of the one who sits on the throne of which the declaration is in the seal? Who can open it? And what does John see? The opposite. A slain little Lamb. The last thing that you would ever imagine to be the one who can open the scroll that tells us about the rule and the reign and the power and the authority of God and what it looks like when it's on display. It's not a roaring lion that hunts down its prey and devours it. No, it's a slain little lamb. Jesus. The only person or thing that is worthy to open the scroll, the one who has the integrity to open the scroll, is the slain little lamb, because Jesus executed God's power in a way that's consistent with the heart of God. That's why he's the one that can open the scroll. Because Jesus' death and resurrection is consistent with the heart of God and the rule and reign and the power of God. So when God's power is on display... When God flexes God's omnipotent muscles in the world, it does not look like a pride fighter with a tattoo down his leg, we're looking for a commitment to make somebody bleed. There isn't anything that's further from the power and the rule and the reign of God. It does not look like bullets and bombs and guns and war. It does not look like politics and presidents. It does not look like coercive top-down power. It does not look like manipulation and finagling. No, the power and the rule and the reign of God when it is on full display looks like sacrifice. It looks like a slain little lamb. It always looks like Calvary. This is not a book about the future. It's not a book about how the world will end. No, it is a book about the victory of the slain little lamb and what God's power looks like when it is on full display. God is, John's, John's God is not a bloodthirsty warrior. In fact, the opposite. Because the lamb metaphor runs all the way through the end of the book. Constantly, John's coming back to when God's rule and reign is on display, it looks like this. Self-sacrificial love, prayer for your enemies, turning the other cheek. So the Jesus of the Gospels actually is consistent with the Jesus of the book of Revelation. I would submit to you. We don't have two different gods here. We don't have a case of schizophrenia going on. John says when God is on display, when the power of God is on display... It looks like a lamb who gives up his life for those who killed him. God's ferociousness and passion looks like a gentle lamb. Have you ever seen a baby lamb? Man, if you go to the fair this year, go to the 4-H barn, my goodness gracious, they're like like the most lovable, amazing little creatures you could ever imagine. So friends, this morning, I want to offer you the possibility that the way of Jesus and the person of Jesus that John gives us so beautifully in the book of Revelation is not a pride fighter with a tattoo on his leg and a sword coming out of his mouth to slay everything and every, everyone that's not consistent. We're going to talk about judgment and what the judgment of God looks like. It doesn't look like that. God never has to lift a finger. But when God is on display, it's the crucified and resurrected Messiah giving up his life for his enemies. And so I would say to you this morning, as we come to this table, as a reminder of the work of God, the cross and the resurrection is at the center. It's the focal point. It says that the lamb was at the center of the throne. The center of the world is what? Top-down, power, warmongering, bullets, bombs, and guns? No. Self-sacrificial love for your enemies and for those who persecute you. That's what the message of the cross is. That's what the message of Jesus is. I would submit to you that's the message of the book of Revelation. So, John says, who is worthy to open the scroll? And I would say to you this morning, who wants to follow this Jesus? Do you really believe that in the end, the way that God fights back is by sacrificing himself? The way that God defeats evil in the world, is not top-down. It's actually sacrifice. This is the way of the cross, and this is the way of Jesus, and this is the invitation to us who follow. So I'm going to invite our band to come back up. We're going to move into a time of communion, and as we do, we'll have a time of silence. I'll invite you to consider a couple of things, and then I'll invite us to this table that we come to, also known as the Lord's table or the Eucharist. So if you would, pray with me, and I'll lead you into a time of silence. God, this morning, as we gather in this place, I'm reminded, amidst this book, which I think is so often misunderstood, is an image and a picture and a metaphor of your power and your rule and your reign and your authority, and it doesn't look like what we expect. So God, as we think about our own lives in the places in which we have power, the places in which we can exercise authority, the places in which we have influence, would you in this next moment of silence, Holy Spirit, just turn on the lights. If there's any way in which we are executing power or authority or influence that is inconsistent with who you are, Jesus, would you turn on the lights? Would you let us see it for what it is anti-Jesus, anti-Christ. And would you call us, Holy Spirit, into ways of being that model and represent and show us the heart of God when it's on display, the crucified Messiah. So Holy Spirit, lead us. Here we are. Speak to us now, I pray. My friends, uh, remember our prayer team is available. If you have any need for prayer, they would love to pray with you and for you. Uh, Receive this benediction as you go today. May you know the fierce and tenacious love of the slain lamb of Calvary. May you follow in his footsteps as you love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. May you come to find and know that when God's power is on display, it always looks like Calvary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace. Hope to see you at the tailgating party. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com Or on Facebook at www.facebook.com Backslash Community Or on Twitter Awakening Community See you next time we <laughs>